Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here, and it is great to be with you. Um, if you are joining us, then uh, you are joining us at the very beginning of a brand new sermon series uh, in the book of Ruth. And we're going to be uh, starting with Ruth chapter 1 this morning. Uh, the next four weeks, including this morning, we're going to be going through this uh, small Old Testament book. And, and the, the book of Ruth is, is really a prequel to the book that we were already in, 1 Samuel. So Ruth uh, comes in our English Bibles directly before 1 Samuel. So if you're trying to figure out where it's found in your Bible, maybe you still have a bookmark and you can just flip over a few pages, <clears throat> you know, 31 chapters towards the front and you'll find the book of Ruth. But, but it's a prequel because Ruth is telling the story of uh, the lineage of David. It's helping us to be prepared for the coming of David because Ruth, this Moabite woman, this foreigner, this one who was born outside of God's people, is going to be the great-great-grandmother, or maybe it's great-great-great, I forget how many greats, but she's going to be in the lineage of David. David's going to come from her line, David the great king. And so Ruth is setting up the book of 1 Samuel, but Ruth also takes place in the time of the Judges. And in the time of the Judges, if you've read the book of Judges, there's probably two refrains that stand out to you. The first, or it's actually the second refrain, but the first for this morning, is one that comes at the end of the book. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. See, Judges is preparing us for 1 Samuel and the coming of the king, of David. But the other refrain that we hear that's common in the book of Judges is the one that probably most of us are familiar with. In those days, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You see, in the time of Judges, in the time of Ruth, it's a time of unrest in Israel, a time of immorality, a time of loss. That's the time that Ruth is found. And though this story in Ruth 1 begins with loss and it begins with sorrow, there's also a great deal of beauty. There's a great deal of hope. And so we're going to read Ruth 1 this morning. <clears throat> And if you can follow along, the passage will be projected on the screens in front of you. Ruth 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malin and Chilion died, so that the woman, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband." Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. 
But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have, you, have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I, should say, if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for um, maintaining your word, for giving it to us, for preserving this story, this recounting of this uh, sad story. And we pray that in the midst of sadness, in the midst of seeing the sorrow of Ruth, that we would, of Naomi, that we would also see your hand of blessing, that we would see your hand at work, and that we would be filled with hope. So we pray that you would help us now, allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts to please you our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. So many of you know that my favorite writer is a man by the name of Wendell Berry. How many of y'all have read Wendell Berry? A few of you. Very good. Y'all are the right ones. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. The rest of you just aren't right yet, that's all. So, um, but Wendell Berry is my favorite author, and he's the man that I turn to when I'm in between books, and I'm not sure what I'm going to read next, and sometimes I'll go over to the bookshelf, and I'll pull off one of his works, and I'll just read a chapter right out of the middle of a story, or I'll read a whole novel or one of his shorts. I turn to him quite frequently. I love his writing. I love how his writing is very simple. It's very simple, and he tells wonderful stories of normal, everyday people. You see, the characters in Barry's books are not magical. They're not fantastical. There are other books for that, and those are wonderful as well. But, but the characters in his books are like me. They're like you. They're everyday people, normal people. They're men, women, and children going about their everyday lives in this everyday town. And so Barry makes the mundane sing, and he makes the common beautiful. My entry point into Barry was, wasn't Jaber Crow. Some of you have probably heard of that book. That's his most famous. 
And it wasn't one of his most beautiful works like Hannah Coulter. It was actually a lesser known work called A World Lost. And in A World Lost, Andy Catlett is the narrator. He's recounting the story of how he discovered the death of his favorite, favorite uncle, Andrew. And in the story, he describes all the things that went into finding out about Andy's death, uh, Andrew's death, and, and the ramifications it had upon the family and upon him. And he narrates this account, and he does so through his nine-year-old eyes, because he was nine when his favorite uncle passed away. And when he is being told about the death of his favorite uncle by his father, he writes this. He says, when I opened the door, my father smiled at me, but he did not say anything. He stood, held out his hand to me, and took it. He led me out into the hall and up the stairs. And I remember how terribly I did not want to go. I had come in out of the great free outdoor world of my childhood, but my father was the messenger of another world. Another world in which I was already involved in expectation and obligation, difficulty and sorrow. We went back to the room over the dining room. My father shut the door soundlessly and sat down on the bed. I stood in front of him. He was still holding my hand as though it were something he had picked up and forgotten to put down. Andy, he said, Uncle Andrew was badly hurt this afternoon. A fellow shot him. I want you to understand and maybe he won't be able to live. He was looking straight at me, and I saw something in his eyes I had never seen before. Fear. Fear and grief. His uncle Andrew would later die, and in his death, this nine-year-old's world was completely turned upside down. For the first time, but not the last, he was confronted by a world that is marked by loss. You heard it, didn't you? He came in from this great free outdoor world of his childhood only to be exposed to another world, a world of difficulty and sorrow, a world filled with fear and grief. He'd experienced loss. And we know what this is like, don't we? To experience loss. Every one of us has or we will experience loss of some degree. Right, be it the, the loss of a family member or the loss of a job, the loss of relationship or the loss of our health. Loss has been a part of the human experience. There is no escaping it, and it has been part of the human experience since Genesis 3. For when Adam and Eve first rebelled and turned away from their creator God, their covenant-making God, they lost relationship, didn't they? They lost relationship with one another, but they also lost it with their creator, and ever since, we have been experiencing that loss. We know what this is like. And the story of Ruth begins with loss. It begins with the sorrow that comes out of loss. Right? Naomi is experiencing famine in the land. She and her family, and they have to leave the town of Bethlehem, the town that was called the city of bread. And ironically, there is no bread to be had. And so they have to leave, they depart from this land of Bethlehem, and they go into a foreign land, a foreign land, the land of Moab. They've left their home and all that was familiar. They've left their family, and they've gone into a land in the hope that they would escape famine and that their lives would be preserved. Immediately, they are experiencing loss. They've lost their home. They've lost their family. They're going into this place where they do not know what the future will hold. And while in the land, 
Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. And ten years later, so too do her sons. And so in the midst of this loss, this would have been a deep emotional blow to Naomi. But it's more than simply emotional difficulty that she's going to experience because in this society, a patriarchal society, with the death of a husband and the death of her sons, that would have meant her death as well. If her neighbors, if someone out of their kindness, out of the the goodness of their heart would not receive her and her daughters-in-law in, this would have spelled their death. They would have been lost with the loss of her husband. And so she's overwhelmed with sorrow at her loss. And we hear it when she speaks to her daughters-in-law, don't we? She's returning to Judah to find bread, and she tells Orpah and Ruth to remain in Moab to return to their mother's houses. And so she says in verses 11 through 13, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. You can hear it, can't you? Bitterness and sorrow, that is what's marked Naomi. You hear what she says, right? Don't come with me because I can give you nothing. She's beyond the age of having children. She has no prospects of a husband. And even if by some miracle she did find a husband and she was able to bear sons, would would Orpah and Ruth wait for the sons to be old enough to marry? She's telling them to come with me is to lose as well, to experience loss. So don't come with me, stay. Return to your mother's household. You see, Naomi is not just bitter and sorrowful for herself. She's bitter and sorrowful for Orpah and Ruth. She's full of sorrow. We even hear it when she returns to Bethlehem in verses 20 and 21. The women of Bethlehem see Naomi. Maybe they recognized her and they remember who she was. And they're wondering what has happened to her husband and what is her story. And and what does she say to them when they come and they talk to her? She says, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Don't call me Naomi. That means pleasant. Call me Mara. That means bitter. She went away full and she returned empty. You see, Naomi is overwhelmed by loss. And in the midst of her loss, all she can see is sorrow. And it's easy to feel that way, isn't it? When we experience loss... It's easy to only see sorrow when death is near, when a diagnosis comes, when rejection is spoken. Doesn't it feel like all the life that we had, all the joy that we had, all the the celebration that we had in our hearts and in this world, doesn't it feel like it's just been sucked out of us and all we can see is sorrow? All we experience is, is loss. It can feel like the light has been covered by a cloud of darkness. 
And so we only see sorrow. Y'all know what that it's like. So what do we do in the midst of that? Well, let me say the first thing that we are to do is that we are to be sorrowful. That in the midst of loss, be it the loss of life, be it the loss of relationship, be it the loss of profession, whatever the loss might be, that sorrow and grief and mourning, it's not just the appropriate response, it is the right response. That as believers, we are not supposed to be these people who just have a stiff upper lip and we, we move on and we don't feel these emotions and we, we just push them aside and we just put on a smile. No, we grieve and we mourn. We weep and are sorrowful. We're this way because this is how Jesus was. Do you remember in John chapter 11? When Jesus discovers that his friend Lazarus has died and he goes to this town and he meets with Mary and Martha and he sees their sorrow and he sees the sorrow of their friends, what does he say? He doesn't say, I'm the resurrection and the life and I'm going to raise him from the dead in just a moment, so stop your crying, stop your weeping, put your tears away. He doesn't say that, does he? What did Jesus do? Even though he knew he was about to resurrect this man from the dead, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He saw their sorrow. He knew their pain, and he entered into it. When we experience loss, we are to be sorrowful. That is the right response, to grieve and to mourn. And there is more to experience than just our sorrow. There is hope. There's hope. You see, this story is shaping how we are to see in the midst of sorrow. This story is shaping us so that we would see not just sorrow in the midst of loss, but we would see hope. We would see God's hand of providence. That's what we see with Ruth and Naomi. In verse 6, in the midst of famine, while in the fields of Moab, Naomi hears that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now, what's interesting is that that Hebrew word to visit. Now, when you think about this word visit, don't think about the visit that we do when we drop in on our friends, like our neighbor, right? Like we knock on the door, can I borrow your weed whacker? And we have like a little visit, right, for a couple minutes. It's not momentary. It's not brief. This Hebrew word is most often used in the Old Testament to speak of God's divine activity. And when he comes with his divine activity, when he visits his people, he often visits them in two different ways. One, he visits sometimes with judgment upon their sin, but also he will visit his people to bring blessing. And that's what he's doing here. God doesn't just come momentarily, but he visits his people to bring blessing. What this is telling us is that God hasn't forgotten his people or turned a blind eye to their pain. He remembers their plight, and he visits them with blessing. And this providential care is affirmed at the end of the chapter, because when Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem, it's the beginning of the barley harvest. They went away in the midst of famine, and they come back in the midst of harvest. God has not forgotten his people. Even in their sorrow, even in their loss, his hand of providence is at work. Now, when you hear that, 
don't hear trite platitudes. God's providence isn't simply every dark cloud has a silver lining. It's not that. That is not what we are to say to one another in the midst of sorrow, right? Like, like that is not the response that we are to bring in the midst of sorrow. That's not what God is doing here. What this is isn't simply a, a trite platitude. It is something much deeper than our mere experience. It is seeing that even in the midst of sorrow and in the midst of loss, God has not left his people. God has not forgotten his people. God continues to work through his providential acts of grace and mercy. He is providing for his people. He has not forgotten them. And he visits them with blessing. And so even in the midst of our sorrow, we have to see God's hand of providence, but we also see his hand of kindness. And this is interesting. When Naomi encourages Orpah and Ruth to return to Moab, she actually invokes God's blessing upon them. Did you see that in verse 8? Go, return each of you to her mother's house. And may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord deal kindly with you. She's invoking God's blessing upon them. And what's fascinating about this, <clears throat> excuse me, is that that Hebrew word there translated kindly is a Hebrew word that shows up all over the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word chesed. And if you've been around CTK for the last number of years, you know that every summer we take a break from whatever series we're doing and spend the summer in the Psalms. And at some point in the midst of the summer, you're going to hear from my mouth the same thing I said the previous summer and the summer before that, and you're going to hear it again next summer. <laughs> there are two Hebrew words that we all need to know if you're a believer. The first is Yahweh, God's divine name, and the second is Hesed. God's covenantal love. Y'all don't have to be Hebrew scholars. You don't have to know how to parse uh, verbs. You don't need to know declensions or anything like that. But those two words, Yahweh and Hesed, we need to be mindful and remember God's steadfast love. That's how it's translated in the book of Psalms. Every time in the Psalms that you read steadfast love, it is the English translation of this Hebrew word. And here, Naomi is invoking that love and asking for that love to be showered upon Ruth and Orpah. It's translated kindness, that God's kindness, that his unending, unbreaking, unfailing, and forever love would be showered upon them. And what is fascinating about this is that Naomi asked for God's kindness to come upon her daughters-in-law, and yet it is that love that she is in need of herself. It is that kindness that she needs to experience herself. And she does. She experiences it through Ruth. Because look what happens. Orpah kisses Naomi and she leaves to go back to Moab. But we're told that Ruth clung to Naomi. She wouldn't let her go. She clung to her, and in verses 16 through 17, she said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. 
Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also if anything but death parts me from you. What a beautiful statement. See, Ruth has embraced the Lord, and she is expressing the unfailing love and unfailing commitment of the Lord to Naomi. I mean, you heard it, right? Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you rest your head, when you get up in the morning and you walk by the way, wherever you go, I will be with you. That's what she says. And she goes on. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. I will turn from my pagan past. I will put aside my history and I will follow the Lord. I will embrace Yahweh and he will be my God and I will be as one of his own. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. Even when death shall come, she's saying, even when death shall come, I will not return to Moab. I won't go back to that land. Instead, when I die, I will be buried with you. Naomi said she returned to Bethlehem empty, but in reality, Naomi returned with the undying loyalty of Ruth. You see, in the midst of Ruth's sorrow, excuse me, Naomi's sorrow, Ruth manifests God's chesed love to her. She demonstrates his undying love and embodies his unfailing kindness. That is what Naomi needed, and y'all, that's what we need. And let me just say, I have seen that expressed in you. I've seen the way that you have loved one another and I've experienced that love for myself. Many of you know that not long ago, Kat's father died. And when he passed away, many of you surrounded us with this kind of kindness. Many of you were there with an embrace and you came shedding tears You spoke words of comfort. And in our sorrow, you were present. In our sorrow, you expressed God's kindness to us, and y'all, that is beautiful. And I've seen you do this for not just my family, but I've seen you do it with one another. Many of you, I've seen you do it with one another. Seeing the sorrow in our midst and drawing near to those who need God's kindness, and y'all, that is beautiful. That is beautiful. It's a beautiful demonstration of God's kindness. And y'all, that is what we are in need of. We are in need of God's chesed love to be showered upon us, to be demonstrators of that love to one another. And that's not just what we need in the household of God. That is what our world needs. That is what our world is in need of. You see, our neighbors, they don't need any more shrill and angry voices. What they need is a demonstration of God's unfailing kindness. And that is what God's people can bring them. That is what we can be demonstrators of. To see them in their sorrow, to see them in their pain, to see them in their grief, and to demonstrate the chesed love, the unfailing kindness of the Lord to them. That is who we are, those who have experienced that love. And so we are to be ambassadors of that love. That's what our neighbors need, and that's what we are in need of, and that's exactly what God has given. That is what God has provided us because that is what Jesus has done for us. 
Jesus saw us in our sorrows. Some of us, our sorrows were so deep that we didn't even realize we were experiencing them. He saw us in our sorrows and he dealt kindly with us. He visited his people by taking on flesh. And he delivered us by going to the cross and he rescued us by rising again. He is present in our sorrows and in our sorrows he gives us love and kindness. And y'all, that is what I need. And that is what you need, and that is what our neighbors need, and that is what God gives. Because in this world, we will experience loss. In fact, some of you may be experiencing it even this morning. In this world, we will experience loss, but in the midst of our loss, God assures us that we will never lose his love. God assures us that in the midst of our sorrow, that there is more, more than our sorrow. He opens our eyes so that we can see his unfailing kindness. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the kindness that you bestow upon your people, for the love that you have shown in Jesus. And we ask that as your people, as those who have received that love, who have experienced that kindness, that we would be ambassadors of that love, that we would be demonstrators of that kindness to one another and to the world, so that the world would know us because of our love for one another, and that we would point others to the love of Christ. So, Father, do this in us and through us. Help us in our time of need. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, and God's people said together, Amen.